All right. While they receive the offering, go ahead. You can pull out your Bibles uh, to the book of Acts. Book of Acts. We're beginning a new series this morning. Uh, we're going to be diving into Acts all summer long here at Flourishing Grace. This is Acts part two. Uh, if you have been around for over a year, you know that we were in Acts last summer. La last summer, we spent the whole summer in Acts together. We walked through the first nine chapters of Acts. There's 28 chapters in Acts. Um, we walked through the first nine last summer. We're going to do another chunk this summer, and then we're going to finish it up next summer, Lord willing. Okay, that's the plan. It's a it's a long work, a long book, and so we're just gonna we're just gonna keep coming back to it here at Flourishing Grace as we walk our way through the entire book each summer uh, here at Flourishing Grace. And so we are gonna pick it up next Sunday. We're gonna pick it up in chapter ten. So we went through one through nine last summer. We're gonna start ten next week. We're gonna really dive into it next week. This morning, what I want to do is just kind of lay the groundwork for us, just kind of frame it up a little bit and prepare our hearts for everything that's about to come over the next several weeks and even the next couple of months here at Flourishing Grace. And so uh, if you remember last summer, uh, Acts was written by a guy named Luke. Uh, he also wrote another book of the Bible. Anybody got to guess what that one might be? Yes. They got jokes. They got jokes. No, uh, Luke, of course. Yeah, Luke. Luke wrote Luke. Uh, he did not name it, name it after himself. That was named later, right? He's, he's not that arrogant. Uh, he, it was named later, right? And so Luke wrote these two works that we have uh, in our possession today. He wrote uh, the Gospel of Luke and he wrote uh, Acts. And so what this was, both of them were, were gifts, both of them were, were gifts to a, to a guy named Theophilus. Theophilus, we don't know much about Theophilus, uh, other than we, we assume, based on the, some of the language Luke uses, that he is a high-ranking Roman official. Uh, when Luke refers to him in Luke, he says, Oh, most excellent Theophilus. That is not something you say to your friend. Okay? When you're like writing a letter to a friend, you're like, Oh, most excellent. No, you don't, you don't talk that way. So there, there's this sense that he is a kind of a, a well-respected uh, public figure. And so Luke writes these two accounts. He writes the Gospel of Luke. Uh, a, it's, it's a historical work um, depicting everything that Jesus did on earth while he was alive here. Before he died and rose from the grave and ascended into heaven. He says, man, here's everything Jesus did. And so Luke, Luke wasn't there for all of that. Luke wasn't there for, for any of that. He goes back and he studies history. He goes and he interviews. He gets all these firsthand accounts. He's asking people, okay, what did you really see? What did he really say? What really went down? What really happened? And he writes a record of it all and gives it to Theophilus so that Theophilus might know all that Jesus did while he was alive. But then he writes another work. Acts, Acts is a 30-year history from the ascension of Jesus. Jesus ascends into heaven and kind of what the church does, these early followers of Jesus for the first 30 years, this advancing of the kingdom of God, the advancing of the kingdom of God. Luke writes this work to Theophilus so that Theophilus might know and so that you and I might know that the mission of God will continue as the Holy Spirit powerfully works through individual lives to advance the gospel 
build his kingdom, and expand the church. Let me say that again. This is, this is the, kind of the thesis of Acts. That we might know the mission of God will continue as the Holy Spirit powerfully works through individual lives to advance the gospel, build the kingdom, and expand the church. And this is what we see again and again and again through, throughout Acts. The Holy Spirit powerfully works through individual people. You have guys like Peter and Paul and Silas and Barnabas and John Mark. The Holy Spirit powerfully works through individual lives to advance the gospel, to build the kingdom, and to grow and expand the church. We see this again and again and again. And there's a running theme throughout the entire book. There's a running theme throughout the entire book of Luke. And you're going to see that as we unpack it over the next several weeks here at Flourishing Grace. And what we see are these two things. Opposition and advancement. Opposition, advancement. Opposition, advancement. It's again and again and again. If you are into writing in your Bible, okay, walk through the book of Luke, read through the book of Luke, and every single time you see opposition, circle it. You see opposition in every single chapter of the book. Sometimes that opposition is internal, right? There's people in the church saying, no, 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 we need to do things this way. No, 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 we need to do things this way. There's people getting in trouble and and just sin, all kinds of stuff inside. But then there's opposition outside, Uh, whether that's systems of government, the Romans pressing back and and, and imprisoning and killing these early Christians, or whether it's individuals um, kind of persecuting these, uh, these, these early Christians, or the Jews persecuting these early Christians. You see constant, in every single chapter, you will see some form of opposition to the mission of God. But then you can underline where God shows up. Again and again and again and again and again, God shows up and the church advances. There's opposition Then God shows up, whether that's the power of the Holy Spirit, whether he sends an angel, there's opposition. God shows up and the church advances. Opposition advance. Opposition advance. This is this goes through the entire work. And so there's there's a few things that you need to understand in order to understand this book. If if you are going to actually be influenced by it. There's two big things that you must understand. There's kind of two theological buckets that we must kind of, as we read this work, if we don't have these kind of two big theological buckets kind of in us and kind of over us and kind of looking through the lens of these two things, all it will be is a historical work. It's like, sweet, Luke, thanks for doing that research for us. I appreciate that. And that's it. It's just a historical work, and that's that's all it will be for you. If you don't understand these two things, and the two things are this, the mission of God and the call of Christ. If, if you can't wrap your mind around the mission of God and the call of Christ, like the book doesn't make any, any real impact on you. But if you want to get the most out of this work over the next several weeks here at Flourishing Grace, okay, if you want it to actually impact your life, and influence the way you think, and influence the way you act, and, and kind of see these, these historical stories kind of leap off the page and be like, that's amazing. You want to be influenced by that. You must understand the mission of God and the call of Christ. And so what I want to do today is really just unpack those two big things. We're not going to spend a ton of time in Luke. We are going to get there a little bit in chapter 1. 
but we're not going to spend a ton of time there. I just want to spend our time unpacking these two big ideas, these kind of two big theological things, the mission of God and the call of Christ. Does that make sense? Is that okay? All right. First, the mission of God. Here's what I want to do. I just want to break it into four parts for us. Now, it's, it's not broken into four parts. It's just one massive mission. And it was, it, was, it was established by God before the creation of anything. Before, before anything was, God knew exactly what he was doing, okay? But in order to help us understand it, it's easier if we kind of break it down a little bit and you can kind of see these kind of four stages of mission. So stage one, we see in the Old Testament. Here, let, actually, I'll throw it up here on the screen. Here's the four stages. So kingdom imagined, Kingdom established, kingdom advanced, and kingdom come. So these are kind of stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four of this mission. Now again, again, I'm just, I'm just creating this to help you see it clearly. Okay? So kingdom imagine, right? We see in the Old Testament, in the fall of Adam and Eve, when Adam and Eve sin and they rebel against God, uh, we see sin unravel all that God had created. We see sin unravel the fabric of creation. In a moment, in an instant, we see, man, we need a Savior. We are, we are broken and fractured. Everything is fractured. We now live underneath the curse of sin. And so God begins to prop up this image so that we might imagine a greater kingdom. So we might imagine a greater home, right? He establishes a nation through Abraham. And through Abraham, we see this people who try to live faithfully before God. Through Moses, he leads them out of slavery in Egypt and gives them the law. And what we see in the law is the most faithful people on the planet. Okay, now listen, they're jacked up. I know they're jacked up, but they are, compared to everybody else on the planet, they're the most faithful people on the planet. And they cannot fulfill the law. They can't do it. God says, here, here's what's required of you. You want to come after me. You want to be like me. Here's what's required with you. And they can't do it. No one can fulfill the law. The most holy men on earth cannot fulfill the law. And so what we see, God is showing us, man, there's got to be something more than this. We need help. We cannot do this on our own. What do we need? We need a king. The people know they need a king, so they cry out for a king. God gives them a king. We see King David, who cannot care for the people. He's an imperfect king. He's a king that cannot do it. And so we, we have this kind of propped up image uh, of our need for a savior, our need for a king, a need for a sacrifice. Uh, under, underneath the law of Moses, we see this need for a sacrifice in order to atone for sin. We see it again and again and again. And then the prophets show up and the prophets say, no, no, God is going to provide. God's going to provide the sacrifice. We see that in Abraham with Isaac. We see that in Moses. And we see it in the prophets. God is going to provide the sacrifice and God's going to provide the king. Right, when Daniel writes about the king, Daniel talks about this kingdom that, that, will, that will be an everlasting kingdom. God's going to establish that. He's going to do it through a son of man. And of his dominion there will be no end. 
of his dominion, there will be no end. God is sending one. And we have this picture of what the Jews called the Messiah, this king who's going to come to conquer and rule and reign. He's going to establish a never-ending kingdom, and of his dominion there will be no end. But if you look closer, we get a better picture of what he's going to look like. Isaiah tells us that he's going to be a suffering servant. He's going to be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He will not be esteemed by men. He's not going to look like a king at all. He's not going to be celebrated. He's going to be crushed. And so we're we're propped up this, this kingdom so that we can see it, we can imagine it. Man, there's got to be a solution to this. God says, I'm going to create the solution. I have the plan. I have the mission. But then, in Christ, we see a kingdom established. Christ shows up on the, on the scene, and he is this one. He is one like a son of man. He is God in the flesh. God becomes a man. He puts on flesh, and he dwells among us. God says, I will step in myself. I will step in. I will become the king. I will become the rescuer. I will become the redeemer. Christ steps in. He goes to the cross. And he, on the cross, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross covers our sins, makes a way for us to go back to God. And the, kind of the most important piece is not for this, for what we're talking about, is, is in the cross, we are now, for those of us who are in Christ, we've submitted our lives to the rule and reign of this king. We are in Christ. We are clothed in his righteousness. Our lives are hidden in Christ. And so when God looks upon us, he no longer sees our blemishes and our imperfections, our sin and our rebellion. He sees the perfect sacrifice and the perfect righteousness of his son. And so now God can come and once again he can dwell within us. We no longer need a temple that separates us from God. We have become that temple. Christ takes up residence inside of us. The Holy Spirit comes to live within us. And so we move into this phase of kingdom advancement, knowing that kind of the, the final phase, kingdom come, Christ is going to return. He's going to come back. He's going to, he's going to finally defeat uh, the fullness of his enemies. He's going to crush Satan. He's going to abolish death. Death will be no more. He will reign forever. His enemies will be a footstool before him and forevermore there will be a kingdom. He's going to hand that kingdom over to his father and be like, done, finished, dominion is mine forever. But I skipped over the kind of this third phase, this kind of, this kind of kingdom advancing phase, this kingdom advancing phase. And this is, this is the important one that you must understand. This is the one that you were born into. You were born into this phase. You see, you could have been born 4,000 years ago, and you could have been a part of kind of propping up this image of the kingdom so that we might be able to imagine our need for the kingdom, but you weren't. You could have been born 2,000 years ago, and you could have been a part of seeing the kingdom established through Christ. You could have stood in awe of his glory and wonder and seen the resurrected Christ, but you weren't. You are born here and now. You, you live here and now. And we exist in this stage of the plan, kingdom advancement. And this is where Acts begins. 
Acts begins here in this kingdom advancing stage. Now, how does a kingdom advance? How does a kingdom advance? Rome, Persia, war, war. Yeah, the kingdom advances. A kingdom advances as they, as they gather their troops and they march on city upon city, town upon town, village upon village, and they conquer. And as they conquer, right, as they conquer through violence and war or, or, or just by a show of force and power, right, the people in those cities and in those surrounding nations submit their lives to the rule and reign of that conquering king, and the king advances, right? This is, this is how it works. But of course, this kingdom does not advance through violence. This kingdom advances in the same way. As people around the world submit their lives to the rule and reign of Christ, the kingdom advances. As people around the world submit their lives to the rule and reign of the king of kings, the kingdom advances. This is, the, this is the stage that we were born into to be a part of this advancing of the kingdom. As people in Shanghai, China, submit their lives to the rule and reign of Christ, the kingdom advances. As people in Telangana, India, submit their lives to the rule and reign of Christ, the kingdom advances. As people in, in Morocco or Kenya submit their lives to the rule and reign of Christ, the kingdom advances. As people in New York City submit their lives to the rule and reign of Christ, the kingdom advances. As people submit their lives to the rule and reign of Christ in Davis County, the kingdom of God advances. But of course, this kingdom does not advance through violence or oppression or war. So how does it? How do we advance this kingdom? How does the kingdom advance? It advances through the call of Christ. The call of Christ. We see this in Acts 1. In Acts 1, Jesus has died on the cross, he has risen from the grave, and he, but he has not, he has not ascended into heaven. So he's died on the cross, he's risen from the grave, but he has not ascended into heaven. Right? He is on earth, the resurrected Christ is on earth for 40 days. He is seen by over 500 people. They see him, they hang out with him, they, they listen to his teaching. You want to know why this thing explodes in Jerusalem? Because people saw him. They saw him bleed out on the cross and they see him walking around teaching and talking and preaching for 40 days. And right before he ascends into heaven, he speaks to his followers. And here's what he says to them. This is Acts 1.8. It'll be up here on the screen. He says, but you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Acts, that moment, right there, that moment, is the beginning of this kingdom advancing phase. Jesus says, you are going to advance my kingdom, my followers, the people have submitted their life to my rule and reign. As the cross of Christ is displayed in your life, you say, man, that's what I need more than I need anything else in the world. I need Jesus. 
He is, he is far greater than anything I will ever achieve, anything I will ever desire. I need the grace and the mercy of the King of Kings. And so I submit my life to his rule and reign. And you, you will be my witnesses. You who have submitted your life to my rule and reign, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. You will now prop up the cross of Christ and say, look, I bear witness to what Christ has done in my life. I bear witness to what Christ has done in the life of my friends. I bear witness to what Christ, the cross of Christ has done in my family. And I proclaim to the world the cross of Christ. This is the plan right now, today. Today, Jesus is advancing his kingdom by the power of the Holy Spirit through individuals. This is what we see in the book of Acts, and this is what we should see in the life of every follower of Jesus. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the kingdom advancing through us. In 2 Timothy 1, 9, Paul talks about this idea. He says it, he says it this way. It'll be up here on the screen. 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul says this. He says, The one who saved us and called us, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Before the ages began, he saved us, and called us, right? So, so Jesus didn't just save you from something. He didn't just save you from your sin or save you from hell, or save you from being a bad person. He called you to something. He called you to something far greater than yourself. He called you to be one who advances the mission of God before the foundation of the earth. Before the foundation of the earth, the king of kings said, I'm going to use you to advance my kingdom. I'm going to save you. I'm going to call you. Before anything existed, the king of all kings said, Ryan, I'm going to save you, and I'm going to call you to something far greater than yourself. Before anything was, before there was planets and stars and moons, the king of kings said, Megan, I'm going to save you, and I'm going to call you to something far greater than you can possibly begin to imagine. I have a plan for your life that is far bigger than anything that you could ever dream or hope to discover. I'm going to save you. I'm going to call you out of spiritual darkness. I'm going to bring you into the kingdom of my marvelous light. And I'm going to call you to advance it in the lives of your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers. I'm going to call you in your day, in your hour. It is no mistake. It is no mistake that you were born when you were born and you live where you live. Nothing is by chance. Yes, you could have been born 4,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago, but you were not before the foundation of the earth. God said, I'm going to save you. I'm going to call you. There is a purpose for your life that's far greater than you can begin to imagine. And this is declared on every page through the book of Acts. 
There's an author, Christopher Wright. Christopher Wright wrote a book on the mission of God. And in it, he talks about this idea, the mission of God, and and specifically our role in it. And there's a quote, I'm going to read it, it'll be up here on the screen. It says this, is fundamentally, our mission, the mission of your life as a follower of Jesus, if it's biblically informed and validated, if if you look at the Bible and say, man, what's the purpose of my life? It means our committed participation as God's people at God's invitation and command. You're invited to this, but you're also called to it. In God's own mission within the history of God's world for the redemption of God's creation. What is our mission as followers of Jesus? Our mission as followers of Jesus is to be committed, fully committed in the participation of God's mission to redeem creation. We fully commit our lives to his mission to redeem creation, the redemption of God's creation. The same gospel that saves us calls us to something far greater than ourselves. The same gospel that saves us from the pit of hell calls us to be one who, who, who displays Christ, image bearers of Christ, declares of his goodness and his wonder and his mercy over all of creation, that he is the king of all kings. We submit our lives to his rule and reign. In the midst of great opposition, we advance the kingdom. You are kingdom advanced. If you're a follower of Jesus, and I know not everybody in the room is, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a kingdom advancer. That is the call of Christ on your life, to advance his kingdom through opposition. It's written in every single chapter again and again and again. It is not an easy work. No one says, hey, this is going to be easy. What we see in the book of Acts is again and again and again, the powers of darkness, the forces of this earth uh, oppose this idea. They oppose the advancing of this kingdom, but God shows up to, to work for his will again and again and again and again and again. Somewhere along the way, we have begun to buy into the lie that this is easy. Or the lie that, that these two things have been separated. Right? What, what Satan wants to do in your life and in mine is kind of mentally separate our salvation from the call. He's actually okay with the salvation piece. Yeah, sure. You heard about the gospel. Come on. Look, Jesus is awesome. Go, go, go do that. But he doesn't want you to understand the call. He does not want you to understand that as you step in to the kingdom of God, that there is now a call in your life to be an advancer of that kingdom. He doesn't want you to see that. He doesn't want you to know that. He doesn't want you to wrap your mind around that, right? So what he has done is he has diminished the call for us. You see, in our culture, in our day, where we live right now, we believe that we are responding to the call of Christ by attending church once or twice a month. Like if I show up to church, I've responded to the call of Christ in my life. Done. Kingdom advanced. Awesome. I responded to the call of Christ by volunteering in the kids' ministry once a month at Flourishing Grace. Done. Kingdom advanced. You're welcome. I responded to the call of Christ by throwing some money in the offering plate, maybe, maybe once or twice a month. Man, look, done. I responded to the call of Christ. Kingdom advanced. Awesome. No, the call of Christ 
There's a call to sacrifice our whole lives in response to this call, to bear witness to him in our neighborhoods, in our places of work, in South Davis County, in Utah, in the United States, to the ends of the earth, declaring his goodness and his sweetness, his grace, and his rule and reign, his plan to restore and redeem all things. One of my great heroes is a guy by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a, was a pastor and a theologian in Nazi Germany, and he was, he was actually killed in a Nazi concentration camp 74 years ago. 74 years ago, Bonhoeffer was hung in a Nazi concentration camp. And his most famous work that he ever wrote, of course, was the, the call, um, the, the cost of discipleship. And the, kind of the most famous quote in The Cost of Discipleship comes in, in this paragraph. And I'm going to read it for you. This is, this is perhaps the most famous thing that he ever wrote. He says this. He says, The cross is laid on every Christian. The suffering of Christ, the, the, the cost of it all, is laid on every single follower of Jesus. There is going to be opposition. The first Christ suffering that which every man must experience, if you're a Christian, you must experience this, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. That is the dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to, which, to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. Now here's the famous line. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Here's what Bonhoeffer is saying. He says, man, when we encounter the cross of Christ, the establishing of the kingdom of God, and we see the power on display in that cross, we see every ounce of grace that is poured out on us on the cross. When we see the restoring and redeeming work, the sanctifying work of Christ, that in a moment, in an instant, when we receive that sacrifice, the full wrath of God being poured out on him, we are justified before him, perfected in the eyes of God, righteous before him. When we see that, we must bear that. We become bearers of this cross. Suddenly, everything in life disappears. Everything shrivels before the all-surpassing glory of Christ. The things of earth become strangely dim in the light of His grace. Suddenly, these things are detached from us. I no longer need wealth and glory and fame and riches and renown. I don't need these selfish things anymore. I have the cross of Christ. And when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die, to lay down all of those things at the call of Christ, to go, therefore, and make disciples. This is what we see in Acts. The people in Acts understand this. Again and again and again. They're not unlike us. 
Many of them are married and they have families and they have jobs and careers. And so, so we prop those things up as excuses. Well, I'm just too busy. I got, a, I got a job. I got a family. So did most of these guys. Most of the people that you read about in Acts had, had wives and husbands and kids and careers, jobs. But compared to the cross of Christ, when the cross of Christ was laid before them, all of those things shriveled in comparison. They said, man, every day of my life must be lived for that. There is a king of all kings, and my life must be submitted to his rule and reign. And the reality is, if Jesus walked into the room right now, he just walks in the room, full glory of Christ, and says, hey, I have something I, I need you to do. Can you do me a favor? Who, who in the room is going to be like, oh, we're kind of busy today. We got plans. We're going, to, we got to, yeah, we're going to go to a lagoon. We're going to get some lunch. I don't know if today's the day. No, no, no. We fall prostrate before him and we say, please ask me. Please ask me. I want to do it. Whatever, whatever you have for me, I want to do it. And he says, well, it's going, to, it's going to take a lot of time. It's actually going to take the rest of your life to accomplish this task. Yet, yes, whatever it is, I will do it. I would love to do it. Please ask me. I want to serve you. I want to draw near to you. I want to be close to you. Friends, my point of all this is that he has. He's walked into your life, and he's called you to something far greater. And he says, I don't want you to do it alone. I want to do it with you. I want to spend the rest of your earthly days walking with you step by step, hand in hand, by the power of my Holy Spirit, drawing near to you in an intimate relationship as you be my witness, as you bear witness to the goodness and the sweetness of the gospel in the lives of your friends and your neighbors. If, if the call of Christ has been diminished to simply church attendance for you or, or simple little things, you must ask yourself the question, am I really a Christian at all? I might get in trouble for that, but it's true. The call of Christ on your life as a follower of Jesus is so much bigger. It's so much bigger than that. And so here's my, here's my challenge to us as we walk through Acts over the next several weeks here at Flourishing Grace, over the next couple months here at Flourishing Grace, is that you would kind of lift your gaze and, and study and observe how the people in the book of Acts responded to the call of Christ amidst their busy lives, amidst their careers, amidst their families, how they respond to the call of Christ in their lives again and again and again amidst a great opposition. They say the call of Christ is far greater than anything else I'm going to face. There's no fear. There's just boldness. Again and again and again in, in Acts, we see boldness. Where are these people in our day, in our time, who will respond with responsibility to this call? Who will be responsible to this call? Will you be responsible to the call of Christ in your life? Where are the people who say, man, Davis County is my home. It is where Christ has called me. I want to be buried here, and you can just write it on my tombstone, responded to the call of Christ with every breath I had. Do your neighbors know why you're here? Are you looking for ways in the community to, to, to build your influence, places where you can get plugged in, places where you can meet more people and you can tell them, man, I'm here in this day, in this time, so that you might know Jesus? 
that you might know of his grace and the wonder of his cross. Let us be a people who invest the wholeness of our lives to the call of the King of all kings. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we come before you and we declare this morning that you are king. Whether our actions declare it or not, you hold more authority than our boss at work. You hold more authority than our spouse. You hold more authority than our political leaders, our mayors and governors and presidents. You hold more authority than anything in all of creation. So I pray that you'd give us strength this morning to see that and that our actions would declare it, that you are the king of all kings, that at your name every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord. Of your dominion there will be no end. And so don't let us waste another hour. Help us to see the mission of God and our role in that mission as we respond to the call of Christ in our lives. To share your goodness with those in our lives. Let us be bold. Let us, let us draw near to the Holy Spirit and ask that he would work mightily in our lives and give us power that we'd see many sons come to glory as a result of what you do through the individuals here at Flourishing Grace. I'm trusting you for that. For these things in your name, in the name of Jesus, amen.